Welcome to Food Riot Radio. Our food supply has been managed, manipulated, and mandated. A collusion between government and corporations has determined what ends up on our plates. If you value having access to a variety of real, nutrient-dense foods, then join us on our quest for food freedom. Welcome to Food Riot Radio. I'm your host, Brad the Butcher Jordan. And if you haven't done so already, please check us out on Facebook. Just search Food Riot Radio and follow us on Twitter. After two years of delay, the Food Safety Modernization Act is finally about to go into effect. The FDA is moving forward with the rules that are supposed to make food in the United States the safest food in the world. Well, thank God. Hailed as the most sweeping overhaul of farm and food policy since the Great Depression, some fear the law will actually make our food supply less safe by regulating small organic farmers out of business and leaving it in the hands of a few mega farmers and processors. My guest today is Judith McGeary, founder of Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting the rights of independent farmers, ranchers, homesteaders, and homesteaders. Judith, Judith is also an attorney, a farmer, and a Weston A. Price Funda- Foundation chapter leader in Austin, Texas. In addition to her law degree, Ms. McGeary has a bachelor's degree in biology from Stanford University. She and her husband run a small farm with heritage poultry, sheep, cows, and horses. Judith has been following the Food Safety Modernization Act since it was first proposed a couple years ago. Initially, she feared the food coming feared the coming food safety regulations would be so costly for small farmers that they'd go out of business. Since then, farms with less than half a million dollars in annual sales have been exempt from this regulation. Judith, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, no problem. Great to have you. So I understand you've spent the last couple of weeks studying the 1,200 pages of rules the FDA has just released as a result of this new food safety law. Are you still concerned about the effects that they will have on small farmers? Uh, I'm very concerned. Um, these rules, and, and I can't, yeah, I have not gone through the full 1,200 pages. It, it's a massive pair set of documents. Um, but there are a lot of provisions in here that are deeply concerning. Um, and I want to clarify that the exemption you mentioned during the introduction is very important, and, it, and it's a very good exemption, but it does have some um, caveats. So um, there is an exemption, and this was set by Congress, not by FDA, right. that exempts out um, producers who are grossing less than half a million and who sell more than half of their products directly to consumers and local businesses. You have to meet both parts of that test. So that would be like farmers, markets, things like that? Exactly. Okay. CSAs, you know, the, the local local food outlets. Right. And 500000 in annual sales, that's just the sales. That's not the actual profits. And there's a lot of money that can go into farming. So that might not even be that much. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's you know, people hear half a million are like, oh, my God, that's a, you know, that's a big farm. You know, it's not a micro farm, but it very easily can be, you know, there's often only a 10 or 15% profit margin. Um, even on, you know, profitable um, local food, you know, high-end producers. So we're, we're not dealing with mega farms. We're still dealing with, very, with quite small farms, really, in the big picture. And the other caveat, um, or a pair of caveats to, to that exemption, is that it limits, first of all, what FDA can do 
what, what FDA can require from you as a farmer, but th- there are ways FDA may be able to whittle away from that in the future by declaring various emergencies. Oh, right. And it doesn't stop private businesses from saying, well, we don't care what the law actually requires, we want you to meet federal standards. And a lot of retailers, a lot of businesses, restaurants, take that approach to cut protect themselves. So these, these rules, whatever FDA finalizes, could end up having an impact even on the small farmers. Oh, right. So like even a small Amish farmer, what, like, a, like a raw milk farmer, even though he may not make you know, f- the 500000 in sales, the FDA could find some rule in the Food Safety Modernization Act, and that could shut him down, right? Well, so, so first of all, particularly for raw milk farmers, there's already so many ways for, for FDA and right. authorities to shut them down. But, um, but any type of farmer, let's pick, you know, picking something less controversial. Um, okay. Um, it's not that they could find necessarily another rule in the Food Safety Modernization Act, but there is, a, there is unfortunately, a provision in the exemption that says that um, FDA can earn the exemption under, you know, if it finds basically that there's a public health emergency. And, I mean, it, it, it should hold FDA to a high standard. You know, it, that was the intention. Um, but, you know, I don't have a lot of faith here. And, and so we have to watch out. So even the people who might be able to say, and I do think it's a good exemption, but it's, it's something we have to keep an eye on and not sort of um, rest on. Yeah, and not, think that everything's solved by it. Not, not let everyone think that the, the small farmers are safe. Exactly. Because I wish we could. <laughs> So yeah, I mean that's just kind of that's kind of weird. Why would they paint with such a broad brush? I mean, Congress is this Michael Taylor guy, the the thug from Monsanto, says Congress has said that these modern techniques should be applied to all foods across the board, and that's what these rules do. And I mean, I'm quoting Michael Taylor. How how can he paint with such a broad brush? The mega farms are so much different than smaller farmers, right? Well, the, the justification on their side, you know, what, what the mantra is from big food and big ag and, and FDA is basically all food should be safe. And the, the response is, well, of course all food should be safe. Right. But that doesn't mean that all food has to travel the same path to become safe. Um, and, and what may be needed, and I argue that I don't know that you can make food on the sort of mass conventional agribusiness scale ever truly safe. Um, but what may be needed to improve your safety at that scale is, is not needed and very often counterproductive at, at smaller scales. Well, right. It's just overburdensome. And, you know, probably the, I think the real thing that would make people safe is if people actually started going to the farms themselves. And, you know, that way the, the food wouldn't cost as much because there wouldn't be so many regulations. And then they could see for themselves exactly what the farmer's doing. Exactly. It, it, it comes from having, and, and both the, the consumer coming to the farm is a big part of that, looking at it from a farmer's perspective. And a lot has to do with really hands-on management. Having a farm that's of the size, um, and this, you know, can be a, a thriving family farm. It doesn't have to be sort of a micro-tiny operation, but, you know, of the size where the principal manager, the person who owns that, you know, the farmer who owns that business, whose name is behind that business, has hands-on management and is there day-to-day and is, you know, has a small enough workforce, whether it's their family or a few hired help, you know, that they can really supervise well and they know what's going on and they know everything that's happening. You know, that type of hands-on management is where you get, 
your best quality control of, of all kinds, which would include food safety. Oh, right. So that way the farmer or the guy that owns the, the farm could take a couple steps back and just observe what's going on and then make corrections. Whether, whether they can take a couple steps back or not, what I mean is the, the, the comparison that I was drawing implicitly is to the big agribusinesses. When you're running thousands of acres right, and you have, let's say, hundreds of migrant workers picking your crops, uh, guess what? You aren't. You don't really see what's going on day to day. Oh, because it's you such know. a massive operation. Exactly, and that's one of the sources. You know, really, we know this. We know this from any kind of business. When you grow that big, and the people whose names are behind it, whose reputations are behind it, aren't involved day to day to where they can see what's going on, and they really are on the ground there, quality suffers. And right. well, in, in the food world, part of quality is food safety. Yeah, I mean, and you can even say that with maybe, like, General Motors, you know, when they got so big that their quality started to go down with the cars they made, and therefore, sales suffered. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, hopefully that happens in the big food business, too, and people just start going to smaller farmers. Well, and I think we're seeing that, and I think the big far- the, the agribusiness are concerned. Um, they know they aren't keeping up the quality. The consumers are becoming more aware that the quality isn't there in, in the mass-produced conventional food system. And so the consumers are looking for higher quality food and going to local farmers. So, I mean, and, and it's so easy to see. It's like, you know, I always make this comparison to a bag of carrots at the grocery store to carrots from uh, an organic farm at the farmer's market. I mean, they're just bright in color. They have this honeyed smell to them, and they're sweet and delicious. And then the, the carrots at the grocery store are this lifeless bag of, you know, orange. But it just it's so different when you look at these two types of carrots. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so, okay, so what kind of new regulations are in store for farmers and food processors? I mean, do, do we have any idea of what exactly is coming their way? So, like, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, we're talking about literally 1,200 pages. So I'm going to end up leaving out the vast majority of what is going to be opposed and just focus on one or two pieces that are, frankly, near and dear to my heart and that I think are, are very important local foods production and sustainable food production. And and a big chunk of these regulations deal with what they call with biological soil amendments. Um, and, and they have these wonderful terms about biological soil amendments of, you know, not of animal origin and of animal origin. And basically what it boils down to is that FDA appears to live in terror of anything that had anything to do with an animal at one point. Really? Right. Why, why, why do, they, do they live in fear or because of that? Well, you know, there's some legitimate concern, you know, about issue that things, you know, manure and, and you know, um, carries, not toxins, carrying pathogens. Very much so. Well, not carries pathogens. And so you do have to be careful when you're starting manure. There, there are absolute common sense things that need to be done and, and things that need to be recognized. But FDA takes it to this incredible extreme. So... They set up standards um, for what it takes for properly, quote, treating manure, mm-hmm. which most of the rest of us call composting. Right. Um, and, and they have very stringent standards. Here's what you have to do to have considered this treated. And if you haven't treated it, if you haven't followed exactly their protocols and done what they think is needed to make it safe, you have to wait nine months between applying manure, or it could be simply even a compost that's their standards, 
um, and harvesting the crop. That is crazy. Because manu- parts of the country, you couldn't use manure-based compost. Manure is the magical stuff that gives the soil its life, right? Exactly. I mean, I mean animal-based composts are an incredibly important part of sustainable farming. Well, yeah, I was reading about that in Joe Salton's book about how he just says this is the stuff that gives soil life. It gives gives the vegetables the nutrients that we eventually consume. It, it creates, what it does is it gives it the biological life, which helps the nutrient cycle, to be super technical about it. Oh, okay. I, you know, I have to. Um, but, you know, you can get there are some good plant-based compost, and, you know, those are wonderful things. But frankly, you know, their supply is um, rather varied around the country. It sort of depends if you live in part of the country where there's enough plant material to turn into compost well. Um, and there are parts of the country that's not true and that rely very heavily on, you know, manure-based composts. And, and yes, the drool is just, um, it's similar. You know, they also have these very extensive rules for having animals anywhere near the property or near, near the crops. You know, what happens if wild animals have access to the, to the field? Even, you know, handling pets or work animals. You know, what, what the Amish have to do um, dealing with their draft horses. So, I mean, there's this, this um, incredible paranoia, which stands in very stark contrast to the fact that they, and they say this in the rules, you know, they're not dealing with, like, chemical toxicity. You, know, you want to go spray everything covered in chemicals, right. that's fine. Well, it's funny because, you know, when you go to the grocery store, besides the outside, there's rows and rows and rows of prepackaged, sterilized food. Is that what they really want to do to these farms, too? Do they want to sterilize the food, irradiate all the <laughs> the nutrients out of it, the, the live enzymes? I mean, that just doesn't seem like a healthy thing to do. Well, to a large extent, that is what they're doing. I mean, that, that is the model in the public health community that FDA very much follows, which is, you know, the, the path to safety is sterility. Oh, my God. Well, um, I can... And, and, this is, and that is, it goes back, you know, you're talking about raw milk. If you, if you think about why raw milk is so controversial, why it's such a target by, F, for F, by FDA, one of the reasons, you know, that I think there are several, but one of them is it, it challenges the whole paradigm. I mean, the idea that what's healthy for you is what has been, you know, pasteurized or sterilized or irradiated. Raw milk is, is this feature of, well, here's the opposite. Well, and, and I can say from my own experience that that raw milk and, and raw egg yolks and, and following Sally Fallon's Nourishing Traditions book has really almost saved me. You know, I, I feel like I'm a healthier person. I feel like I'm... I'm more aware of what's going on. I just feel like I'm always in a good mood because of all these wonderful saturated fats. <laughs> and I, you know, before I found out about all this, it, you know, I've been on this journey of, of food and food freedom these last few years. You know, I was kind of, you know, I was a little overweight kind of, to, but I just cannot for the life of me understand why our government would want to take away the right to have these types of foods. I mean, they're just so nutrient dense and delicious. They keep me full and energized. And and I just think it's sad that we have FDA officials, you know, raiding Rossum Foods, going to Amish farmers in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania and <laughs> kicking in their doors and confiscating all their raw milk. And it's just this nutrient dense, wonderful food. It's, it's you know, you can't say that here is the reason, because 
essentially our government is made up of lots of different people and lots of different powers and entities have their you know, little fingers in this deal. And, and so there are a lot of different reasons you can point to. You know, one thing that comes through often at all different levels, not just FDA, but, you know, the state health departments, the local health departments, and, you know, when you read these, you know, if you slog through even a few couple hundred pages of these rules, what, what comes clear is it's just this training and this mindset of being scared of dirt. And, again, you know, I, I think basic sanitation is important. You know, when I'm cooking in my kitchen, I take very careful sanitation measures. You know, I, I don't mix raw meats with raw vegetables. I know what I'm handling, you know. But they take it to the extreme. It's a, it's a, it, they, they, they seem to think that our best option is to get as close to a sterile situation as we can. And that ignores two really important things, which is, one, you can't get sterile in real life. I mean, outside a lab, the second you pull out anything, even in a lab, the minute you pull it out of autoclave, it stops being completely sterile. Um, and, and the broader question of health, not just foodborne illness, not just, you know, can I come down sick with salmonella, but what you're talking about, which is how, do we, how can we be healthy? And there's so much evidence that we're healthy by being part of a diverse, healthy microorganism community. Um, and that every, you know, these attempts to sterilize everything are, are really hurting us. Well, well, right. I mean, because I think your body needs to be exposed to these different types of bacteria in order to build your immune system. I mean, ever since I've been drinking raw egg and I mix it in with raw egg, or I mean, raw milk with raw egg yolks, I haven't been sick. You know, I eat these living foods and i feel great and i just can't see why people would want to take that right away from me you know i mean our daughter she drinks raw milk and she's healthy and happy and sometimes i see like these other kids out there that aren't eating these nutrient dense meat and fat diets and they're just suffering and i feel really bad that they're not eating the proper the proper foods traditional foods um, that, I realize this may be a tangent, but this is where my brain went. <laughs> it, I want to go back almost to the discussion earlier of what we were having about exemptions and, and why I don't want people resting on the Tester-Hagen exemption, as important and wonderful as that is. You know, ultimately, we want as many people as possible to have access to nutrient-dense food. You know, this needs to stop being the 1% or 2% of the population who knows enough to really hunt it out and work for it. We want every, you know, large numbers of people to have access to healthy food. And if any producer who produces more than half a million dollars of crops a year, and there are going to be quite a few, you know, that, again, that's not a big farm, really, has to comply with these regulations, then um, to some level we are preventing, we're preventing the growth that's needed. We need larger producers. I don't mean mega guys. I don't mean the guys running thousands of acres. But I'm talking, you know, mid-sized farms, the type of farms that used to feed this country. We need them adopting methods that include quality compost and compost teas and these important microbiological brews that improve the soil, improve the environment, and improve the crops. And so what we don't need is FDA regulations that make it, you know, impossible or all but impossible for farmers to adopt these sustainable methods. Well, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it would be wonderful if we had more of these small to medium-sized farms where people would have 
you know, all kinds of options in regards to what kind of food they could get. I mean, I would, you know, right now I have to get my raw milk out of state because it's illegal for sale in the state of North Carolina for human consumption anyways. I mean, you can sell it as pet food, but a lot of farms won't do it because they're scared that, hey, the FDA is going to come in. They're going to kick down my doors. They're going to raid my raw milk and raw cheese, and, and that'll be it, and I'll have nothing, you know. And but just just to be able to to go down the road and be able to buy some fresh local um, raw milk would would be a huge burden off my shoulders. I wouldn't have to worry about it coming in from another state and meeting at my little secret drop point to pick it up. <laughs> and it's just crazy that we have to do this. That we have to almost like hide in the dark about our n- nutritious foods. We should. Uh. The, the drug deal version of raw milk. Right. It, you in the parking lot and give you money for the white stuff. Th- that's it. It's like we, we hide out in this back alley behind this closed-down grocery store, and we exchange all our goodies. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and it goes... And, and, Think the scope of this bill is incredibly broad, or not this bill, sorry, these proposed rules. Um, you know, the, the Food Safety Modernization Act covered pretty much all of the foods under FDA's jurisdiction, which means it doesn't cover meats or eggs, but, you know, pretty much everything else gets, is under FDA's jurisdiction. So we're talking about people's access to quality vegetables, quality fruits, quality nuts. Um, right. What about raw almonds? Part- Raw almonds, almonds would be covered in this. Um, not necessarily the raw piece. I mean, that's a different. There's a whole raw versus pasteurized piece, specifically on almonds. But regulations on how those almonds are grown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when could you use a compost tea in your almond orchard? Would be covered by this. Um, you know, people making fermented fruits, you know, fermented vegetables, and different processed foods. Um, I don't mean processed foods like the box stuff in the grocery stores, but, you know, prepared foods as shortcuts for people who don't have time at home to do all of it. Right, like a chicken um, pot pie or something. Hmm? Like maybe like a, a chicken pot pie or or, um, can, or fermented veggies, like you said. Exactly. You know, so, so they'd be covered by sections of this rule. There's a whole other section of this rule that deals with prepared foods and, and something called hazard analysis um, and risk control prevention, um, RCEP. So, you know, we're talking about all kinds of foods being affected um, by this proposed rule. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, this thing's massive. It's it's 1,200 pages. And so one of the very first things we're saying to FDA is we think people need more time. You know, FDA has spent two years working on this rule, and frankly, they've actually done a lot of groundwork on these issues for many years before that. And it's going to take more than 120 days for farmers and food producers all over this country to be able to read 1,200 pages and think about what it means and how it applies to them and write back with, you know, reasonable comments to explain, you know, here's the problem points, here's what we think would be a, a, a reasonable alternative. But that, that all is going to take a lot more than 120 days. Oh, I bet. And and so e- even the, the legislation that is in place, it, it'll probably cost – Farmers at least tens of thousands of dollars a year. Is, is am I correct in that assumption? You know, I don't know. I think the dollar figure could vary so hugely, and what well, part of it is going to be not just dollars. I mean, I think there's there's going to be a dollar cost, particularly for people who are doing processed foods and have to do these harvest plans and go through a lot of paperwork and administrative steps. I think for the farmers, it's both going to be a, an issue of, like, it costs X, 
but it's also really going to be a feasibility issue. So if you're not, you know, let's say these proposed rules went through as written, you know, we didn't win any concessions, or they, they go through as written, um, I don't know that I could raise an orchard. <laughs> um, really? You know, we, we just, I, I just put in an orchard, you know, on a personal level, you know, right. and their requirements for what we'd have to do in terms of compost teas and animal access and the rest of it, it's not, it's not just a money issue, it starts becoming a feasibility issue. Like, I just can't um, do this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, 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 well, I can't, you know, or if I am, I'm not going to, to do this, I have to give up on a whole lot of sustainability principles that are, you know, part of why I farm. You know, I farm a certain way because I believe land and, and animals and plants should be, should be managed a certain way, and I'm not going to abandon that um, to satisfy FDA. Right, I mean. And so, so that's going to be part of the problem, is it, 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 it's not just money, it's feasibility, and we need, we, again, we just need the time to really work through this let people know what's going on and be able to marshal, you know, the, the proper response to this. Yeah, you know, one of the rules I thought was kind of funny, I've read a few articles about the, the new rules. They want to have porter potties with, like, a full bathroom sink running water all over the farm field. Is that true? So I haven't gotten to that section. <laughs> I've read, or I skimmed a little bit of that. Um, and I'll say this, you know, again, so much of this comes to how, what we see with a lot of regs is it depends how it's implemented. And you also have to recognize, again, the difference, and whether they're going to recognize the differences between types of farms. So there okay. is a very real problem on the huge industrial-scale farms that are employing very often migrant workers, almost always horribly underpaid workers under bad conditions. I mean, this, this, this is... This is widespread rampant abuse of workers in, in the agricultural industry. And you, you literally do see, I mean, workers are under so much pressure that to, to harvest, you know, they get paid by the bushel in many cases, that they will not take bathroom breaks. I mean, if there's only one bathroom, you know, and it's a 20-minute walk, then they won't take a bathroom break. They'll just go in the field. Oh. That, that, that's a sense. First of all, it's horrible for the workers. I mean, you think about what it means to be under their under that situation. Right. And from a sanitation perspective, it's not safe. Well, right. So there's you, a real problem. But, yeah, you don't want people peeing on your vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but does that mean that a small farmer who's got a five-acre farm and a farmhouse that's a you know, pretty easy walk, and they have four workers who are being paid reasonable wages by the hour and have no problem you know, taking a break and walking to the farmhouse? Are they going to have to also install all of these porta potties? Right. I mean, because they actually have to have sinks with running water and everything. So it sounds like it could be quite costly to, uh, and that's what I was thinking too of a small farm, you know, that just has five to ten acres. I mean, are they going to have to have like uh, a porter potty every couple acres? I mean, it just seems kind of, kind of too costly. It, yeah. So, so, so the biggest question, and I haven't delved deeply enough into that section of the rule to give a to give a good answer on well, here's where they might get a flexibility and where they might not. But the pattern often is on, on, on these rulemakings and the way these regulations get applied is they don't apply them with common sense and they don't apply them with a recognition that you know that thousand acre farm with workers who are under immense pressure not to take a five minute break is a very different thing than the five acre farm with you know, three workers who have been there for years and who have job security and have no problem taking a break. Right. They just paint with such broad brush. It's it's a little ridiculous. 
Exactly. Um, well, Judith, we're coming up here on the end of the show. Uh, can you tell the listeners where they can uh, reach for more information, reach out to you in, in your organization for more information? So our website is www.farmandranchfreedom.org. That's farmandranchfreedom.org. And we'll have information posted about the rules as we continue the analysis. We also will have an action alert posted, um, either when this airs or very shortly thereafter, telling people how they can take action to help support the effort to get an extension on these rules. Because that's the first step. The first step is we need more time. So, and, um, you know, because we need to do a proper analysis to do this right. And it'll be very important to have people being active in that process and helping, helping put pressure for that. Okay, so all you listeners out there, we need more time. We need more time to look at the bill to analyze it because as it stands, it doesn't bode well for farmers, especially the small ones. Precisely. And thank you so much for for inviting me on and, and for letting your listeners know about this. All right, Judith, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Again, folks, that was Judith McGeary from farmandranchfreedom.org. Please check out our website for more information on the Food Safety Modernization Act. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. This is foodrightradio.com.